Triple HFM Sports in association with Atlas Chartered Accountants, HK Post, Hornsby RSL and ISC Sports welcomes you to Splinters, your no-holds-barred sports podcast. Here's your host, the raging bull, Anthony Caruso. Good evening and welcome to Splinters, the bench podcast on Triple H 100.1 FM, streaming on the web at www.triplehfm.com.au and available for download at podcast.com, Apple Store, YouTube Music, Spotify, iHeart, TuneIn and all good podcast sites. We do it all for Atlas Chartered Accountants, the Hornsby RSL, ISC Sport and The Post. Anthony Lebo Caruso back with you and we are back into the cricket for this week. We've just bared witness to one of the most disjointed English men's performances on a tour to Australia, arguably the worst performance since 2006-07. Indeed, it was so bad that the great cricketer have described the result as Australia winning the series 4.9 to nil. But as one series closes, another opens with the women's now about to get started. And we are very excited to see both series operating at this time of year. Joining us, on the panel tonight is two of our regulars from the bench now on a Monday night, but frothing at the mouth to talk all things cricket. First off, joining us tonight, our biggest cricket tragic, the White Tower Roller, Ariane Shah. Good evening to you. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Andrew. Good evening, everyone. I'm so excited to get into this and really rip the English team to shreds. And that's all they really deserve, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I know that the women are going to put on a much better show and it's going to be a huge competitive series between two of the big women's cricket heavyweights at the moment. So I'm really looking forward to that. Well, with us tonight as well is a man that could well take over as the new wise man from Matt Mears, Andrew Hurlinger. Good evening to you. Thanks, Anthony. Good evening to you as well and and Arian and all our listeners. Yeah, it's going to be great to just take apart, I think, some of probably one of the most disappointing Ashes series that I've been a part of to to watch. Um, I think we've seen a lot of the, the test formats flaws exposed in this series and um, definitely some concerns for the England team. But I guess a little positive aspect as well for Australia getting back on the on the horse after probably the disappointing results they had last summer. So good for them. Part one tonight will be a wrap up of the men's series. And we will look at a shambolic performance of England and where Australia need to consolidate part two tonight. will be a preview of the women's series, looking into their squads, looking into the format, the format of the series and really talking about what the girls have in store, especially considering that there's going to be a T20 and a world cup coming up very soon. Well, with that, umpires strike back and Hugh Jars are on the mid, out of the middle now and it is now ticked over. Time to play. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Splinters. I'm going to kick things off with the wrap of the Men's Ashes series. And Ari, I'm going to start off with sort of the lead up into the test series not only in terms of a lack of preparation for both teams, but distractions for both teams and both squads. Yeah, well, like you said, it wasn't really a preparation. All the the English inter-squad games got washed out. The Australian, there was only the Australian-England A game, which did go on during the test, so not really anything. And then, of course, we remember that famous 
Tim Payne, 16 scandal, changing of the guard as captain, Pat Cummins coming in, Steve Smith returning to a leadership role, that huge racism scandal embroidering almost the entire English team. So, yeah, I don't think cricket was front of mind at the beginning of that series at all. And not only that, Andrew, but the debate going on about whether Western Australia would or wouldn't host an Ashes series and that that infamous scene where Mark McGowan attempted to bluff Cricket Australia, Cricket Australia calls calls his bluff and ends up Mark McGowan left with egg on his face. Yeah, well, absolutely, and it certainly left the the Western Australian people once again just without much to look forward to because, as we've known, that test got rescheduled and moved to Hobart, which in itself is quite an interesting move because it gave Hobart their first test match, um, Ashes test match, and also the first test match they've had in quite a while back since 2016. And I was quite interested to see what the conditions were like, and I enjoyed that we finished the series there in Hobart and that they got an opportunity to to showcase um, what they can provide to the the test format. But, uh, yes, certainly the the McGowan um, incidents really did put a a dampener and was a bit of a distraction from, uh, once again, just being able to understand what conditions that England were planning for. Though I guess that might be a criticism of England as well because they did plan a lot and maybe that's something that they shouldn't have done. Well, let's go through the test series match by match. And first off, Ariane, the first test at the Gabba, England thought they made the the best of the opportunity, winning the toss, avoiding the, the idea that they had to win the toss and bowl first, deciding to bat, and even that ended up being the wrong decision. Yeah, and you look at the conditions back on the first day, the, the bit of rain around, the ball moving, Pat Cummins, Mitchell Stark. You see what Mitchell Stark does time and time again. First balls of the series. Pat Cummins always consistent with his line and land at you with good pace. And he's got an incredible average in test cricket. And he just showed why he's still the best in the world with that fiver he got. And I thought Joss Butler, he really kind of stood off with Ollie Pope playing some kind of counter-attacking cricket. But besides that, there wasn't too much to report from an English perspective from that and then, first innings. And then, Andrew, the, the, the counter-attack from Australia was relentless. Yeah, it was. And it was exactly the right strategy at the time. I think if we go back a numerous number of summers ago when Australia won 5-0 against a pretty good England team holding the likes of Graham Swan, that was exactly the same strategy that David Warner took down. He took him down with sixes and fours and knocked him out of the attack. And Jack Leach, who pretty much is of lesser quality, it was always the right tactic to come forward to him, and they they executed it really well. I thought Marnus Labuschagne was really impressive in that first innings of the series as well. He kind of came in there with the silky strokes and aggressive um, batmanship that we usually see from him at the Gabber. He's got a great record there. And they set the platform really well. And then Travis Head, who we knew wasn't someone who came into that series a little bit under selection cloud, some people questioning whether it was going to be him or Kawaja. He came in and knocked it out of the park. I mean, it was absolutely terrific, that knock he had on the, the second evening and, 
uh, pretty much took the game away from England because when you're posting a total of less than 200 and then the opposition's blowing you away with 400, you're not really going to be able to come back from that. Absolutely, and really England never recovered after that. Um, they, they made... They made a better fist of it, but only barely did enough to get past to make Australia bat again. It was pretty much all she wrote at that stage. And I thought uh, the really pleasing thing, Ariane, to see from that was Cameron Green getting a, a couple of wickets while the usual suspects in the second innings picked up poles. Oh, definitely. And he was bowling with good pace and quite hostile. And it really kind of set the scene for what he was going to produce the rest of the series. And I really think that the way Pat Cummins used him and him being able to bowl, it really kind of made a huge difference because we saw last year he was a bit injured, a little bit underdone. They didn't really know how to use him properly. He was a little bit unlucky with some dropped catches. But, yeah, he really showed how much of an asset he is to a to the bowling attack and he can bowl very very similarly to the likes of Stark and Cummins so it's great that his bowling has been unearthed in that in this series. I think it was also good to see Nathan Lyon bowl well on that that final day because we knew he'd been coming under a little bit of scrutiny last summer trying he didn't even get to his 400th wicket but he did in that second innings and I think he bowled pretty well to Milan and a few of the other left-handers, Stokes as well, and that probably set his series on the path. Like I wouldn't say he had a great series this time around, but he was very solid, and I think considering that he had a bit of a tough time, it was good that he got himself into the work because it made the England resistance between Milan and Root pretty much fall over once they departed. We then move on to the second test, Andrew, at the Adelaide Oval, uh, Australia winning the toss, electing to bat, and what a performance it was. And it really does set the scene where you're able to set a good enough total in your first innings that you decide to declare in the evening session and make England have to bat at night. Yeah, it does. And I think to to have the highest total of the series that Australia got in a day-nighter at Adelaide was a pretty impressive feat. It was just a, a strong contribution from everyone inside that top four. You had Manus Labashain obviously go on and score that big 100. But I thought David Warner was easily the best batsman on day one. And then Steve Smith came on on day two and propelled that total forward. And, yeah, you've got to set that platform in the second test match, particularly when that was the one game that England were looking at. You know, they pulled out James Anderson, Stuart Broad. They were really putting a big focus on winning that game and bowling well. And to dispel the hope that England had to maybe bowling them out for less than 200 was a couple really, really solid innings I think was was good to see because it made the result once again just look like it was only going to be Australia who would win. And then Ariane, you, 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 I know you're a big fan of him, but England all out for 236 in their first innings and Mitchell Stark showing why he is arguably the best pink ball bowler in the world. Oh, yeah, definitely. And he's, you can't go past his batting, 155 runs, at one stage, he's average of 75.5, only being dismissed once uh, initially, and then 19 wickets as well. And Mitchell Stark with the pink ball, especially in Adelaide, he's just so deadly. He, The ball is just moving constantly. He's got almost 60 wickets 
in 10 games. And when the ball is moving, you don't want to give it to anyone else besides Mitchell Starr. Then come to the second innings, and you could already get the sense, Andrew, that Australia was going in for the kill. They didn't score that many runs, but then they didn't need to because they knew by this stage all they had to do was get it to a certain point, quickly declare, and then get England into bat. Well, this was probably one of the more frustrating periods of watching England and Australia in this series because we actually saw England bowl a little bit better and show that they had a little bit of class and that they could trouble some of these Australian batsmen. Uh, we saw Manus Labuschagne and Travis Head score a couple of good 50s and and take that total to something that they could declare quite comfortably. But, you know, again, it, it also the pitch in that one was quite dry. It actually was made for some of the spinners. And we saw David Milan and Joe Root both take two wickets. And it kind of made you question why Jack Leach was thrown in on Brisbane on a green deck and yet when it came to a drier, albeit a pink ball test, they still didn't roll his arm around. So that was probably a win for Australia, the fact that they took him down in the first game, which meant that their job in the second innings was a lot easier to post that total. And at the end, England just didn't have was too much, too many runs for it and probably an embarrassing sign, Ariane, that their high scorer was Chris Wokes and they were absolutely ripped apart by Jai Richardson with a brilliant... Exp- um, demonstration of swing bowling. Yeah, no offence to Rory Burns here, but I think that Chris Wokes, the way he batted, especially in the early part of the season, he could replace him as an opening batsman because Chris Wokes' is batting was considerably better than his bowling throughout the series. And the way he played in that innings, albeit not reaching a 50, he, he really has this ability put the bad balls away and temporarily keep England in the hunt because he likes to play shots and play with freedom. But Jai Richardson, the way he came back from that uh, sort of indifferent first innings bowling performances, he would be really happy with that. And I know that he, along with all the other bowlers that Australia used, throughout the series. They all belong in the team. We then move on to the third test at the MCG, the Boxing Day test. And um, Andrew, it has to be it has to be said, this was, and I don't know, was this an embarrassment of from England or was this Australia just simply being awesome? No, it was a complete embarrassment. And once again, it just showed the complete selection mishaps that they were making across the whole series, the incompetence of some of the tactics that they had in there, the terrible techniques and just, again, just not being prepared for these conditions that you get in Australia because it is different cricket to what you get in England. It's more taxing, it's more endurance and you have to be able to last and compete and you can't dip off for periods. England in this game just, again, were just dipping in, dipping out and just couldn't keep their intensity when it came to batting. The only person who showed any fluency on that pitch was Joe Root, and even he found dismissals that were cheap. I thought, honestly, I was more disappointed with the England's first innings batting performance than their second innings, which on the scoreboard-wise looked worse. But some of the dismissals on the first day were, I thought, soft, and some of the selections to still have someone like Hamid in the side who was playing with low hands, couldn't score a run, wasn't going to be able to to rotate the strike quickly. I, it was confusing why he was still there. 
and there were a couple of other guys as well. Like Stuart Broad finally um, was again not picked in that game, and I'm like, Stuart Broad on another green pitch, he should be there because James Anderson had a lot of fun on that pitch. He was the easily England's best bowler. I think Broad could have had some fun on that too. Ariane, it was a it was a ballsy move because Pat Cummins won the toss and sent England in, and Australia had not won a Test match sending England in at the MCG, I think in over 60 years, and he defied all expectations. Yeah, but that's the thing with Pat Cummins. I think he likes to do things a little bit differently. And then I guess the pitch in Melbourne, that it was predicted to bounce a little bit more and be a bit more even for the bowlers. Like, it's not like a road like the last few years. So I think he just wanted to exploit that and just see and he's been made to make some bold moves as of late with his selections and use of bowlers and etc so yeah i'm glad that it paid off for him and i think he just wanted to further expose a weak england batting lineup and i think the way scott boland bowled especially in melbourne and sydney he could be a really a real handful on pitches that don't do a lot overseas because he's not the quickest bowler, but he's consistently bowling in those right areas and really difficult to score off because he bowls at that uncomfortable pace where you can't really hit him as such. Like he doesn't have enough pace to get driven or just rock on the back of so that can become a real handy asset for australia especially in places like the subcontinent going forward that's a fascinating point there andrew it the, scott bolland has been described as someone more than anyone else in this australian squad who can genuinely bowl a what they call a heavy ball it's one mm. that you don't think is that quick but it's onto you it's difficult to get away and it's it's nagging. It's not like a Josh Hazelwood who bowls a McGrath-style delivery. This one's a little bit lower to the ground. It's a little bit fuller, but it's just it, it just does so well on slightly slower decks. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that he's obviously uh, perfected in that MCG pitch. It's all about just bowling that heavy ball. And I know he doesn't bowl cross seamers, which is something that a lot of quicks do to try and get a little bit of extra pace off the surface. But he he does bowl that heavy ball really well and he's got a good upright seam. And he definitely can nip the ball both ways, which is good. And the thing that really impressed me is he is just consistently on the spot. Like he doesn't give you much to drive. He doesn't give you much to cut or pull. It's just very consistent. And if you put it on that length all the time, it really challenges batsmen with the line and length and whether you go back and forward. And in particular with this series, with England players who didn't know how to play you know, deliveries that were on the bounce and were struggling with any sort of movement because they weren't playing with straight bats, uh, it gave Boland the perfect conditions to succeed. But the good thing is I also think he has the sort of tools that he can go onto those drier pitches against better batsmen, and he can still be relentless and keep the control, keep the economy rate down, and give himself opportunities to take wickets and the players around him to take wickets. 
We then move on to the fourth test, the pink test at the SCG. And once again, Ariane, Australia win the, winning the toss and elected a bat, and they absolutely put England to the sword. Indeed, the one thing that could be said about this test match, that the only thing that saved England in this match was the weather. Yeah, you look at that inclement weather, especially on the first day, and only half it, half the day being played. That is the only thing. But I think the way that Johnny Bairstow and Ben Stokes batted in that first innings especially, just keeping Australia at bay, even Mark Wood, the way he hit Pat Cummins, the consecutive sixes, that was really big as well. And then Zach Crawley at the beginning there, him and Hamid, how they survived till stumps in that tricky 11-over period right at the end of the fourth day. And then the way Crawley came out in at the start of day five, you really sensed that England had a fighting chance. Then even right at the end, when all England wanted to do was draw the game. Jack Leach came out and was playing his shots. So I guess that century from Bairstow and just that shackle and milestone being broken, it kind of gave them some temporary confidence and belief that they could fight. But And that really showed in the result, but unfortunately they couldn't sustain that. At, on the flip side, Andrew, for Australia, the performance by Usman Khwaja, twin centuries. Uh, hmm. What a batting performance this was. And we, we know he's playing for Queensland these days, but his heart and soul is still at the SCG and it and it just showed the way he played. Yeah. He's a, he's obviously started his career at that Sydney cricket ground and I know he doesn't play there at the Sheffield Shield level, but... He does seem to have found that ground as a bit of a home for him. He scored a Nash's 100 there last time that England were over, and this performance in particular was impressive because it was twin hundreds. The first one was in the green pit, was on a greenish pitch where you could tell the ball was seeming around and some of the other batsmen were finding it difficult. I think Mark Wood was bowling well. Stuart Broad was bowling well. And England probably had finally picked close to their best team but he found a way to succeed and put the pressure back on the England bowlers. And, and the second innings 100 as well, while that was a much easier 100, given the circumstances of pushing for a declaration in England, more just trying to delay the, the game and hope that they have less overs to bat. I still think he did a pretty good job in scoring that in quick time and made sure that Australia at least had an opportunity to set a, a good declaration. I still look back at that declaration I say well they should have declared the moment Usman Kawaja got his hundred and I think they went for about 10 or 15 minutes after that that was unnecessary and I looking back at the the context of the game that was probably the moment that cost them but you know you couldn't begrudge not giving Usman Kawaja the chance to score his hundred um, because he had a really special game and put himself up there as someone who is got to be in the consideration for test selection in the future. No, but you look at Usman Kawaja's second hundred and Australia were in a bit of trouble because they'd lost Warner, Smith and Lava Shane and also Travis Head quite quickly. So that 150 plus... Travis Head didn't play that game. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they lost... um, Yeah. So Harris, Lava Shane, Warner and Smith quite Mm. quickly. So... 
they really needed to put a partnership together because England had given themselves a little sniff. And then once Kawadran Green, that 150-plus stand-up, it was kind of all done and dusted in terms of England having that opportunity to win. And the way Cameron Green batted with that freedom once he found his timing, I think that will really set him up from a batting perspective going forward. The moment for me, I thought, and and we love this may get a nomination for a Sergio Ramos Award for shithousery of the year. Pat Cummins declaring to deny Jack Leach the possibility of bowling his hat trick ball. <laughs> I'm calling I'm calling that as an early nomination for shithousery of the year. It's up there, honestly. I totally agree with that. Jack Leach, it's hilarious. Um that he starts the series going for sixes and he ends up taking wickets. Who knew? And but, Cummins but then, just had to deny him. <laughs> but then why did Alex Carey come out to bat? That was uh, a really stupid thing. Yeah. Like, there was really no point of him trying to slog a ball and just go for run to get out and Look, declare. Like, it, it I says don't a lot. That at all. It says a lot when the only thing we're really picking apart from Pat Cummins' declaration is, like, captaincy, sorry, is that declaration from of delaying it like 10, 15 minutes. Because that's honestly the only thing all summer that I thought he got wrong. And what? while it was probably big in that game because it might have cost them, it's not necessarily a bad sign in terms of Australia's captaincy stocks. One other thing I'd say about Pat Cummins is uh, at times his overrates were a little bit slow, but that's not entirely his fault. Not not compared to England, who oh no, yes, who, who not. got docked, who got docked twelve, um, who got docked twelve. Um, World Test Championship points for slow over rates and ended up walking, heading back home with a tally for their WTC points of minus four. That would mm. be better off forfeiting every test match. That's a Sergio Ramos award. Oh, that is that, another one. You got oh, some contenders that, in. Absolutely. We then go to the fifth test. And really, if you want to talk about, you know, everyone was sort of sending up early warnings that. This was going to be a difficult pitch for the bat because of how green it was. And England finally won the toss and elected to bat. And even when everything goes their way at the toss, Australia still manages to put on 303. And it's Travis Head and Cameron Green again. And really, for me, Andrew, it was a case of too little too late for England in that first innings. Absolutely. And again, just once, once again... Good little periods occasionally for England where they could get themselves on top, but completely letting it go. And Travis Head took advantage. He was taking advantage of it the whole series. I don't know why they never figured out plans for him um, because they just seemed to be unable to stop the bleeding and the runs that he was getting. They had plans for Cameron Green, but Cameron Green, I think, just showed that he's someone who thinks on the spot and he can adapt his technique. But that's still not a reason why they sort of scored 303. I guess it's not, it, it was about 100 runs too many on that pitch because it was very green and the, the ball was seeming around and they had the opportunity to like really bowl them out and, and get themselves in batting. Because if they'd done that, they might have been able to push in front of the, the Australians for the first time in the series. But they let that go as they did many times in this series. And there's three uh, things in that. First inning show out. Um, so Travis Head's composure 
like I haven't seen him bat that for that long without playing a rash shot in a while. And also Nathan Lyon's little cameo at the end and the way he took the attack to Mark Wood that not many others kind of could after that. And that really boosted Australia. And this was the thing is that Australia showed that the only way you can sometimes play on a green pitch is to get on the front foot and attack. And it actually worked out for them Mm. in some ways. England then tried to do that in the first innings thought they were onto something. It didn't just quite, it didn't quite work out, but you had the sense that if they just composed a little bit more and then attacked in, in sets when they knew that they were set, that they'd be able to do something, especially if the pitch got easier to bat, as you'd imagine, as it went on. But Andrew, this pitch actually got harder to bat on as the, as the game went on. Yeah, look, it probably did. Um, it, it, it was, it's a little bit difficult when you you go for that ultra-aggressive strategy that England did. And this is the thing that you kind of felt that England were doing the whole series was that they were looking at what Australia was doing tactically and always just trying to catch up and follow what they were doing. So when Australia were trying to be conservative with the batting and leave the ball a lot, England were like, well, we've got to leave the ball alone more often. And then when Australia was starting to be aggressive and – pushing singles and hitting boundaries. It's like, oh, my God, we've now got to do that. And it's just like they didn't come up with their own ideas and they didn't do their own study and work and understand the conditions themselves and understand how each player plays differently. Like you can't ask someone like a Dubuque Milan who plays a little bit more on the back foot to play aggressive strokes. But someone like Zach Crawley might be more aggressive you couldn't ask Kami to do it as well or Roy Burns because they're not fluent run scorers. But you've got to understand how each player bats and let them play their own natural games. But England, it just felt like they were panicking and they were just trying to do what Australia was doing, which they were never going to be successful at because Australia are the stronger side. Well, we're going to take a break, ladies and gentlemen. When we come back, we're going to have part two of our wrap of the men's ashes and our preview for the women's ashes. This is Splinters, the bench podcast on Triple H 100.1 FM, streaming on the web at www.triplehfm.com.au and available for download at podcast.com, Apple Store, YouTube Music, Spotify, iHeart, TuneIn, and all good podcast sites. We do it all for Atlas Chartered Accountants, the Hornsby RSL, ISC Sports, and the Post. We'll be right back. It's time for the crew to catch their breath. We'll be back after this short break. Do you think the government deserves more of your hard-earned money? If not, make sure you talk to Atlas Chartered Accountants. Atlas Chartered Accountants makes sure the money you earn stays in your pocket through legal tax planning strategies, from finding that last tax deduction to tax-effective business structures for asset protection purposes so you can invest in what really matters, your family and business. Visit their website at ihatetax.com.au. Atlas Chartered Accountants. They are dedicated to you and dedicated station sponsors of Triple H 100.1 FM. Hornsby RSL Club, your perfect place to catch up with friends and family. With dining options ranging from modern Australian favourites in the courtyard, authentic Asian cuisine from Keku, or delicious wood-fired pizzas from Level 1, there is something for everyone to enjoy. Join us weekly for entertainment activities such as trivia, meat raffles, bingo and free live music, or grab some tickets to see one of our first-class entertainment acts in the showroom. Thinking of holding an event? Let our friendly events team guide you through every step to create the perfect event for any occasion. Visit our website at hornsbrsl.com.au 
hornsbrsl.com.au for further details. Hornsby RSL Club, proud sponsors of Triple H. Want to look your sporting best on and off the field? Then make sure you get kitted out with ISC Sport Teamwear. ISC Sport are Australia's leading name in custom sports uniforms with a wide range of sportswear tailored to your team's needs. 100% Australian-owned and fully customisable, ISC Sport cover all four winter codes and cricket, basketball, netball and hockey, as well as training and outerwear, ensuring you look the part when representing your community. As Dom Rizzuto would say, look sharp and play pretty with ISC Sport. Visit their website, iscsport.com, for more information. ISC Sport, official clothing partners of Triple H 100.1 FM. Streaming on the web at www.triplehfm.com.au. Bowling is back in Hornsby. The Attic offers a 10-pin bowling experience like no other, with Australia's first ever augmented reality scoring experience that will take your game to a whole new level. With a selection of traditional and custom-built arcade games, the Attic Entertainment Precinct is complete with a bar and lounge area to keep you entertained for hours. Specialising in kids' parties and celebrations, the Attic at Hornsby RSL Club is perfect for your next special event. Whether it be an afternoon out with the kids or a night out with friends, it will be an unforgettable occasion that will bowl you and your guests over. Visit our website, theattichornsby.com.au for more information. The Attic, proud sponsors of Triple H. Welcome back to Splinters, your no-holds-barred sports podcast. Welcome back to Splinters, the bench podcast on Triple H 100.1 FM, streaming on the web at www.triplehfm.com.au and available for download at podcast.com, Apple Store, YouTube Music, Spotify, iHeart, TuneIn and all good podcast sites. We do it all for Atlas Chartered Accountants, the Hornsby RSL, ISC Sport and The Post. Anthony Caruso here with Ariane Shah and Andrew Hullinger as we go through a wrap of the Men's Ashes series and preview the Women's Ashes that is starting as we speak. In fact, we've finished the T20s now. We'll come to that in a moment. But, gentlemen, before we finish off on the men's, a few talking points. And the first question I've got for you, was Australia that good or were England that bad? Uh, I think it's gonna it's gonna come down to that England were really that bad, and I think it was clear from the very beginning that their tactical preparation for this uh, was just terrible. There's got to be questions asked of Chris Silverwood and Joe Root. I think their preparations coming into this were just totally wrong. The, the selection strategies, leaving someone like Johnny Bairstow and Stuart Broad out of the first Test match when. They clearly have had success here in the past, and in particular with Stuart Broad, who has had the wood over a couple of those left-handers in that side, namely one, David Warner. Uh, But again, it's just like simple things that everyone could see that needed to be done. England just totally could not see it. They could not see what they had to do to try and get the team out there. And, And that's a concern because it's just not something that, it's something that they've seemed to be doing a lot when they come over here, but it was probably the worst that I've ever seen in this summer. So to me, it was England were really bad, but at the same time, it was good to see that some of the Australian performances weren't dependent on the likes of Steve Smith. We saw a very all-round team bowling performance. Like really, you don't often see you know attacks where you go, right, Lion had a good summer, Stark had a good summer, Cummins had a good summer. All the backups had a good summer. So they've got a really strong, solid squad. 
that they can probably now take to different countries and be like, well, this is who we want. Yeah, well, I'm going to have to agree with Andrew for a lot of those points. But if I was being blunt, I would get rid of Chris Silverwood. I don't think Joe Root needs to go. I think selection strategy was poor. I don't know why Zach Crawley wasn't playing in Melbourne. It was a do-or-die game, and I think he's kind of aggressive mindset of looking to attack and not just looking to survive would have like really benefited them. And also England's domestic uh, test county championship really needs a reform. The type of pitches they play on, I think they really need to implement the Duke's ball into their, uh, into that tournament. And yeah, a lot of things really need to be fixed up. So yeah. there's going to be a back to the drawing board for a few, for like the second or third time, much like they did after the 2015 One Day World Cup. Pat Cummins, Ariane, do you think he dispelled the belief that bowlers can't be captains? Oh, definitely. And me personally, I just love the way. Pat Cummins goes about things. He's he's always cool and calm under pressure. He never really gets flustered by too much. And he knows and he has faith in the people around him and he just really enjoys himself. He he enjoys all the moments out in the cricket field. Like even in that SCG draw, he was like, Oh, I really enjoyed that last hour of cricket. It was one of my favorite games I've ever been a part of. Even though Australia didn't win and they were inches away from that whitewash. And that's the kind of attitude you want to see. I saw with Tim Payne in the series against India where stuff didn't start going Australia's way, especially in the back half of that series. He got quite impatient and frustrated and it's almost like he ran out of ideas. So I've already seen enough that... Pat Cummins could be a successful long-term captain for Australia just by the way he carries himself. Andrew? I think there's a lot to like about the selection of Pat Cummins as captain. He was obviously someone who was thrown in at the last minute and had to try and figure out a way to sort of get the team back together and to perform well. And it was always going to be easier against this England side and I don't think he had to deal with a lot of challenges and it's going to be interesting seeing in the future whether he is someone who is a little bit more aggressive or if he is someone who is going to be more conservative with it. But I thought tactically when he was out there in the field, he really handled the bowling and the fielding and the sort of leadership aspects of the side well. well. You could see that he was delegating and listening to some of the leadership figures in the side like Steve Smith but you felt he was always the one that was still making the call. And to, to add on as well, his bowling was terrific and it's exactly what you need. You need someone who's out there inspiring the teammates with their own, with his own performance. He was the leading wicket taker and he didn't even play all five test matches. So that says a lot about him. And I think the most impressive thing that I found about his captaincy was he was always willing to bowl himself. He wasn't, necessarily struck down to the idea that I need to share it around. Like I look at that morning when they were bowling at the MCG, some of the other quicks didn't have a great morning. 
but he was the one who took the three wickets and it was beca- and it was because he got the ball in his hand and he bowled a lot that morning. He left Mitchell Stark off for and only had like three overs, but that's because he kind of got the feeling and could subconsciously know that to get ahead in the game, he had to bowl this player or bowl that player at the right time. So that was the thing that was really impressive to me was that he had a good feel on the conditions and the game. And that's something that you really need as a captain because it shows that you're a strong thinker and that you understand periods in the game and how you've got to win those big moments. And that's going to set them up well for the, the days when Australia have it a bit harder and they're up against better opposition. We then move on to what we think the, the squads are going to be like for the next Ashes series. For mine, I think Australia's only player that's really under threat would be Marcus Harris. For England, they're going to have to make wholesale changes and they're especially going to have to start planning, I think, for life after Stuart Broad and James Anderson. 100%. And that's the difficulty because we were talking about this four years ago that they needed to start planning for the departure of Anderson and Broad while they're still here and they're still pretty much the two that they always rely on. Like, sure, they've taken 600 and 500 wickets um, respectively, but like you've got to move on from that sometime. And I guess that's the one thing which I kind of reconcile a little bit with England this series is that while I think batting-wise they were abysmally worse, bowling-wise there were at least a few players in this site that felt bowled a little bit better. Like we saw Ollie Robertson have a couple of good test matches here and there, and while I don't think he took a lot of wickets in these conditions, he was able to, to maintain a good line and length. I think Mark Wood particularly as the series went on, bowled better and better, and he started to get the wood on a few of the Australian batsmen. He was certainly a factor. And I guess when you look at the success of Mark Wood, you do have to ask yourself, well, what would the likes of Joffre Archer and Ollie Stone been able to do as well? So that's the thing with England is that they didn't have their best side. Um, They still made some bad decisions, like bowling Chris Wokes as your first bowler of the series. Like, that does not make sense. Um, when you have Anderson and Broad and you have Mark Wood there as well. Um, I thought they misused Ben Stokes as well as someone who was just doing pretty much a lot of the donkey work with bowling bouncers and bouncer barrages. And But I was I was okay with that a little bit. I think they're getting a little bit better bowling-wise, but still they barely took 20 wickets in any of these games and they need to learn how to bowl in these conditions. Ariane, very quickly. Yeah, I would agree. And I don't know why Craig Overton wasn't used. You looked at the way he bowled in the last Ashes series, especially in the day-night game. He he could have been a real handful, and especially the way he bowled to Steve Smith in those games. So, yeah, I would have like either played Wokes as a batsman or like left him out altogether. We now move on to the Women's Ashes series. The uh, three T20s have been played out at Karen Rolton Oval for Australia A and then the Women's Ashes itself out at the Adelaide Oval. Going through the squads that both teams have selected here, Ariane, starting off with you in Australia, a combination of players retired and players injured in terms of their changes from the last Ashes series. Yeah, and you look at the likes of Delissa Kaminsky on Sophie Mullen, you injured they're massive outs but then you saw the types of performances the likes of uh talia mcgrath 
and Sutherland were able to produce against India when they came around earlier this year. And that's a really strong side. Although it's full of youth, there's a lot of experience in that youth already. But one surprise, one person I'm really surprised about that isn't playing is Elise Villani. And she's done everything right as of late, scoring runs in the WNCL and also the Big Bash regular occurrences. She like really puts a lot of the opposition to the sword. So I don't know what else she can do to get in and why she isn't in that squad. I, th- I think the difficulty with someone like Villani is that you do have a couple of really good openers up there and, uh, it's difficult to to remove players like that. Like Mooney's a great player, and you've got Elisa Healy there as well. So those are two really good openers. But it's a little bit of a surprise that I guess she's not maybe the backup opener there. But yeah, I, I understand she's certainly been in some good form. Uh, but that's the nature of these sort of test, you know, of the test the test Australians women's side at the moment is that it is a very strong side, and they've got a, a bunch of riches to select from. The other player I thought for mine in terms of them missing is Georgia Wareham, the the Wolf, uh, of course, out injured, I believe, with a knee injury, and she's gone in for surgery. But the the big bolter in this lineup, and she fully deserves her selection in this, is is young Hannah Darlington from out in um, out from the Campbelltown Camden Club. She has been an absolute revelation this year. Yeah, definitely, especially the performances she put in again in the India series and her consistency in the big bash over time. And I think she's developing a lot with the bat. So she's going to be big in the series. We then move Andrew on to the England squad. And you really get the sense that they're, they're attempting a changing of the guard with this squad, but it seems more like a work in progress at the moment. Mm, I, I think it is a little bit of a work in progress. If we look at the last England test match that the women played, it was um, a, a fairly solid draw against India, but again, it wasn't completely convincing. Um, it's still a side that, you know, you're going to be looking at Catherine Brunt, who's going to, um, has been a linchpin of that side and whether she's going to be staying in there long term, it's, it's difficult to know. I also look, yeah, they've had some heavy retirements like Sarah Taylor's gone, uh, Jenny Gunn, Laura Marsh. It's, it's, there's a lot of upheaval on the side and they've got to, they've got to get a few players in, but it's still, there's still a couple of players there that are a little bit older and it's, it's not the same youthful side that Australia have. So, yeah, they've got some challenges to work through, but they can, they've, they've certainly got the players to do it. Yeah, I think despite all the retirements, you look at the people that are there and the experience they've had, Heather Knight, Beaumont, and the others like Charlie Dean, Farrant, they've all been around the setup for a while. Uh, Villiers, Trobsol, Shiva, Danny Wyatt, you know how destructive she can be. So I still think they're going to be very competitive and they're still a very strong side in terms of how they rank amongst the rest of the women's cricket sides around the world. For mine, the the big advantage that Australia's got coming into this test series is how they've managed that generational change 
when you look through their lineup, they've only got three players all past the age of of 30, being Rachel mm. Haynes and then Elise Perry and Elisa Healy have only just turned 31 and they've still got years ahead of them. We, we expect that this is probably going to be Rachel Haynes' last Ashes series, but for the rest of them, they've still got a couple of series left in them. Mm. And, you know, it's their star performers that are going to be staying in that side. You look at Elise Healy and uh, Elise Perry, they're, they're the two best players in that side and they've once again just been around for ages and they're still playing better than everyone else and they're going to be setting the standard and some of the other players as well, like you've got Meg Lanning there, she's 29 years old and she's the captain of this side. She could be around a while and certainly the younger players are just coming through in crops. Like you look, you just mentioned Hannah Darlington. She's someone who looks like she's got a lot of potential. McGrath, she's had a couple of great performances in recent times. So there's so much potential in this Australian side and they just look like the players who are coming in, Darcy Brown as well. It's like there's so much talent that they can pick from and that they can just know that these players are going to be around a while. It's not a it, – maybe it's a little bit of a team in transition, but it's a team that's got a lot of youth. And youth is great because youth is what keeps the team enthusiastic and energetic. And when you've got the experience to match with that youth, you're always going to have a positive energy in that side. And that's what I always feel with – the women's Australian team at the moment is that they really enjoy their cricket and they've got a strong mental attitude to always win. They don't seem to ever get themselves too negative when they're out there in the field or when they're batting. Not only that, Ariane, but you look at the Australian A lineup, and I reckon you could name an entire Australian first line squad from some of the players there. Uh, and some of these girls are unlucky. You mentioned Elise Villani just missing out. And then you look through the rest of them, the likes of Georgia Redmayne, Aaron Burns, Stella mm. Campbell, Heather Graham, Phoebe Litchfield, Katie Mack, and Molly Strano. Yeah, and, and Amanda Jade Wellington as well. She was extremely unlucky to miss out. And you, all these players, they've been on the fringes for so long. Look at the likes of Burns and Redmayne, Campbell breaking in against India series and going back to what Andrew was saying as well about the young crop of players. You look at McGrath, Darcy Brown, Darlington, the way they put in those clutch performances when their backs were against the wall in that India one day in test series, they're made for the big stage already with such little experience. So they're going to put on a good show when it comes to it. Is there anyone from the England A squad that you think could be a bolter to come into the the main lineup? We keeping in mind that George L. Weiss and Christy Gordon both got dropped back to the A squad from the main team. Is there anyone else there you think might be a, a late bolter? One big bolter I could see coming in is Izzy Wong. The way she performed for the Thunder throughout the Big Bash League just really tough to get away or well, she doesn't take too many wickets that pressure will soon mount and she should have a few victims but yeah i think if england's definitely on the back foot early she could be a big inclusion yeah and i think for me it's you know there's you don't see too often that the 
the A players come through. But I, I will do the one that stands out for me, Georgia Eloise. She's someone who has been in that side before. I'm a little bit like I feel like in a big series like this, her experience could have been useful as well. Um, I might I, I wouldn't be too shocked if there were some injuries with that she could get thrown in as well. So that that was probably the one that I look at and go, well, I'm a little bit surprised she's not there as well as the batting all rounder that she is, but. Um, I still think that the, the players that they've got there, because they've brought a pretty big squad as well, that they can probably rely on those players to do the job. I think that you can be assured of that. Well, the format that the season, the series takes, we've got the Australia A versus England A. They've played their three T20s, all at Karen Rolton Oval. They've got the one day is coming up at Philip Oval down in Canberra. But the Women's Ashes series, of course, it's a point system. They've played the T20s all at the Adelaide Oval. This year, they've got the test match that's now been moved, Ariane, to Monica Oval away from North Sydney Oval, which has often been the home of women's cricket here in Australia. Monica Oval, make no mistake, it's a great ground, but... Do you think it will live up to the reputation of North Sydney Oval in terms of being the home for women's cricket? Or do you think they maybe have found a new home long-term? Well, I think North Sydney Oval, from what it, from what we've seen in the past, is definitely one of the most ideal grounds. But you look at the dimensions of Monica, the smaller boundaries, it could become like a sister ground. Like, it's very, it, it's very similar and it, like draws a big crowd and it's a beautiful ground. So I think it's a good trial. And if it goes well, there could be more games there. But questions around the women's test match is two things. Why is it only four days? And why don't they play more test matches? That's two two questions fair I have question, around. Fair, fair question. Go to Andrew. What do you think? Oh, I think, again, it's probably just that we, we're waiting for maybe a bigger followership with the women because it is it is something that we're, we're slowly growing. And I think that the focus that we've got to have on with the women is trying to make that sport as professional as it possibly can. Because as we know, as we know a lot of these women cricketers, not all of them are playing as full-time cricketers. A lot of them have different jobs and it's, it's more of a, a part-time career. And that's the. I think when you get the transition to more full time, that's when you're going to see the series and and the test matches increase. Uh, if they're ever going to go to five days, I mean, we keep saying that the men are going to go to four days. It's it's a bit up in the air, but I'd love to see it. And um, I I think I think it's something that we've just got to be patient with. But it's certainly something that I want to try and speed through because it's the best format and. It's going to be the one that provides the most entertainment for, I think, everyone because it allows players to really express their talent and show what their ability is because as much as 2020 cricket is great to participate and watch, it's not the ultimate test and it's not exactly where reputation, you know, the respect you earn from in test cricket is miles more than what you probably will get from 2020. Um, in terms of the move also to Monica Oval, I think it's a good move because it is the centre of Australia. It's a sport, you know, it's a sporting venue in Canberra. It's not something like, you know, when you're thinking of, you know, the sporting venue of Sydney, it's not North Sydney. So at least when you're moving it to Monica Oval, it's kind of giving it a bigger significance. 
And I'm just hoping – I hope it's not the hub. I hope it's actually just a part-time one and they keep moving up to, to bigger stadiums. So it's a stepping stone. That's what I look at it as. And hopefully it's just one step um, that keeps growing the women's game. To finish off, of course, the one day is they'll be playing down at Monica Oval after the test match. And then they'll be heading over to Junction Oval down in Melbourne to finish off the one-day series. Two points for a win in each of the T20s and the one-dayers and the test match worth four points. Australia comes in. They won the last Ashes series 12 points to four. Uh, I don't see that changing much further. I think they I think they win this. And the difference, I think, this time is that will be, I think, 10 points to six and Australia finally wins the test match in Australia that they've been so long waiting for. Yeah, I think they'll win the test match and I think that'll boost the, you know, when you do that, if you win the test match, it's a lot easier in the shorter formats of the game because it only takes you probably to win half of those and you're winning the series comfortably. Yeah, I'm probably going to be leaning between the 12-4 and 10-6. I still think this is a competitive England team, so... I think they can certainly pause a few challenges and win a couple of games, but I do think the Australian side is just that little bit stronger at the moment, and um, I expect them to win that test match, and I expect them to win the majority of the the shorter format games. So, um, yeah, Australia should win this series. I'm going the opposite. I think England will be more competitive in the 2020s and the one days, and Australia will win the test match. Well, that is full-time here on Splinters. We managed to get through the train wreck that was the men's Ashes performance by England. And we think, we just think that the women's will make a much better match of it and make it a much tighter contest against what is a very star-studded Australian women's lineup. And we can't wait in particular for the test match. That is due to start at Monica Oval on the 27th of January. My thanks to my co-panelists here, Ariane Shah, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. Andrew, thank you for joining us as well. Pleasure, pleasure, Caruso. Absolutely great to be here again. Absolutely. We look forward to having you gentlemen back on again. This is full-time here on Splinters, the Bench Podcast on Triple H 100.1 FM, streaming on the web at www.triplehfm.com.au and available for download at podcast.com. Apple Store, YouTube Music, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeart, and all good podcast sites. We do it all for Atlas Chartered Accountants, the Hornsby RSL, ISC Sport, and The Post. On behalf of Ariane Shah and Andrew Hullinger, I'm Anthony Caruso. Run hard or run home. Good night. Thank you for joining us for Splinters, your no-holds-barred sports podcast. You can also find us streaming on the web at www.triplehfm.com.au and available for download at podcasts.com and all good podcast and streaming sites.